True strength comes from diverse and inclusion. It makes kids better, families better, it makes the game better. We are not done because the work is not done. We have barriers to break and knock down opportunities to give. Those are the words of Willie O'Ree, who in 1958 broke the color barrier as the first black hockey player in the National Hockey League. 60 years later, he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. O'Ree remains an ambassador of the game and a pioneer for equality. His story and his voice, along with the stories and voices of other influential black players, front office members, and fans of the game of hockey, all deserve a platform as we promote diversity and inclusion within the sport. You're listening to Kane's Cast, and this is Amplifying Black Voices. Welcome to another episode of Amplifying Black Voices here on Kane's Cast with Michael Smith. I'm Mike Maniscalco, and today we have a, a very important guest. It is R. Renee Hess from Black Girl Hockey Club. She is the executive director, and she is the founder of the club. And for those of you who haven't seen the story, you can Google it. It's out there, and it's on YouTube where you can see it. But Renee, she kind of has created, and and I think we can go back to our conversation with Mike Whiting, she kind of created a place for people who generally don't look like they're in the hockey crowd to be part of the hockey crowd. And I think the name says it all, Black Girl Hockey Club. Yeah. But it's much more than that. And uh, we're going to have our conversation with R. Renee Hess coming up in just a, a moment, Michael. But this to me is when you talk about grassroots campaigns in making changes and, and how can you get people involved with something this is exactly what this group has done. It started small, but now it's visited the NHL. It's visible on hockey fans' radars. And the message is quite simple. If you like hockey uh, and maybe you feel that you wouldn't fit in with the traditional crowd, uh, we will find a way to get you a space to get you in and enjoy the game. And that's, I think, for me and you, the bottom line. The more people who love this game and are passionate about it, it's, it's the better for the game. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, Renee's doing some some really important work in that space to, to help grow the game uh, among populations that, that might not be so familiar with it. Um, and she's, uh, at least before COVID, was able to travel around a bit. Uh, she even made a stop here in Raleigh, as we'll get into in our conversation, um, and uh, is just kind of uh, uh, creating a community, building a community of of like-minded individuals who can um, 
enjoy a sport safely and together as one. And, um, you know, what she, what she's doing, uh, and what she has accomplished up to this point, uh, is incredibly impressive and it's incredibly important work too. And the, and the work they continue to do, uh, their involvement, black girl hockey clubs involvement in social issues, uh, is extremely important. Um, the scholarships that they hand out to, to, to help, um, young kids, you know, sort of break down that monetary, uh, wall yes. that exists, you know, to, to, to really get into hockey. Um, it's all incredibly important. Um, and it's, uh, and, and sh- what she's doing to, to lead black girl hockey club, uh, is, is quite remarkable. I love the get uncomfortable program as well, which you can see if you go to blackgirlhockey.org, uh, blackgirlhockeyclub.org and find out more about it. But, uh, right now it's time for us to find out more about how this club started, how uh, it can help fans experience the game who maybe aren't sure if they, they want to come and experience. And, and hopefully we'll get to a point where we will have sold out arenas again and everybody can enjoy hockey. It's Amplifying Black Voices with our Renee Hess. Well, we're so excited to be joined on this episode of Amplifying Black Voices by our Renee Hess from Black Girl Hockey Club. She's the founder and executive director. Renee, welcome to the podcast. How's it going today? It's going good, Michael. For me in California, how are you doing out there in uh, North Carolina? You know, not too bad. Uh, it's a little humid today. How's the how's the weather in California? I'm sure it's sunny and gorgeous. <laughs> it's uh, cardigan and flip flop weather, so wow. it's a little bit of both. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, I, I see you have your your Canes toque on there, which is which is great to see. Um, and I want to get into your visit to Raleigh and, and all of that. But first, I just want to I just want to start with you um, because I have a feeling uh, your background and, and your upbringing and your experiences have kind of uh, really influenced everything that Black Girl Hockey Club is all about. So if you could just tell us uh, just a little bit about yourself um, and, and your upbringing and and how you kind of found uh, the game of hockey. So I am from Southern California, and I love to be a fan. You know, I have spent the last 20 years studying popular culture. I went to school for uh, a degree in literature and writing. And so, you know, I, I am a fan of film and literature and television, but not a huge sports person, right? I never really uh, entered into the realm of sports fandom because, you know, the binary of jock versus nerd, I think I was leaning towards the nerd side for most of my life. And then I realized as I got older that it wasn't as binary as I thought, that there are a lot of similarities between, you know, fandoms and how fans engage in whatever it is that they're they're engaging in. And so with that in mind, I was actually at uh, an academic conference in Pittsburgh a few years ago, and I came across hockey. It was, you know, on the television at the restaurant where we were having dinner. And then on the way back to the hotel, uh, we came across a, a crowd of hockey fans leaving the arena 11 o'clock at night, just excited and, you know, in the way of the streets and having a 
great time after the game. And it intrigued me. I was wondering, you know, what, what is this hockey thing? What, why are these guys so excited? Um, and that, I kind of sat with that for a few years. Like I said, you know, I come from an academic background and I work in higher education. And uh, what I do in my day job, because I still do work in higher ed, is I connect my dogs are barking. Uh, what I do in my day job is that I connect our students at the university where I work uh, at um, with local community members. And so my job is community building. Uh, and as I got deeper into this, um, the hockey fandom, I, I realized one, one thing that I quickly realized was that this was a very white sport. Uh, I would go to hockey games or watch hockey games and would not see folks that look like me uh, and especially black women. You know, sometimes I would be out at games and I would see black guys with their friends, but I would hardly ever see any black women. And that, that I wonder, you know, where are the black girl hockey fans? And so I took to social media and I sent out a call uh, looking for other women of color who were hockey fans. And as I started to gather these, uh, find these women and gather them together under the umbrella of our social media uh, Twitter account, which was the Black Girl Hockey Club, uh, I wanted to go get together and, and spend some time with these women and, and get to know them and community build. And so we ended up going to our first Black Girl Hockey Club get together. At the end of 2018, we went to go see the Washington Capitals play. At the time, they had just won the Stanley Cup, and they had two Black players, and they also had two Black minority owners, uh, Sheila Johnson and Earl Stafford. And so we, I, you know, like I said, I'm in California, but I hopped on a plane and went out to Washington, D.C. and got together with 45 Black women, their kids, their husbands, their grandmas and family members, and we got to see a hockey game together. And it was just one of the most amazing experiences of my life, honestly. I never thought that I would be in a group like that and have an experience like that. And as I sat there kind of watching it unfold in front of me, I realized that this could be something more than just a fan club. This could be something more than just uh, a place where we kind of meet up and go watch hockey games, this actually had um, the, the ability to become something um, special. And so, you know, I spent most of 2019 kind of pondering that idea and what, what could it be? What could we do? Um, what kind of programming could we accomplish if we decided to, um, transition into a nonprofit organization. And at the end of 2019, Black Girl Hockey Club filed for a federal nonprofit status and then COVID hit. Yeah. And we, you know, um, in the interim, we had some really wonderful experiences. Uh, we got a group together to come out to Raleigh and I'm sure we're gonna talk about that in a minute. Mm -hmm. um, but as, you know, COVID kind of took hold in our nation, uh, we had to all buckle down and kind of figure out 
uh, how to work from home, how to uh, live separately, you know, socially distanced. And, you know, right in the middle of doing that, uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and Jacob Blake were murdered. And all of these things kind of, uh, they, they snowballed into this big emotional moment for so many people uh, across the world. And, you know, Black Girl Hockey Club became a community safe space for Black folks in hockey. And we decided we really wanted to uh, address social issues and not just um, not just uh, talk about the the you know, the game and um, tweet about the game and, and uh, focus on, on the, the fun and good parts, but also examine the sport and look uh, critically at hockey and how it could be better. And so, you know, right around that time, we launched our scholarship program, which is a way for us to combat some of that financial gatekeeping that comes in hockey. And, you know, the rest is, well, the rest is her story, right? As they <laughs> say, uh, it's, it's happening right underneath us. We're, we're kind of in the middle of it still. It's been a year since uh, we went into lockdown here in the States. Uh, a lot has changed, but a lot hasn't. And so we're still kind of um, working towards our goals. Uh, but it's been it's been such an interesting ride and have such great support from folks all over, not just the United States uh, and Canada, but all over the world. Um, it's been really amazing to see. And, you know, the Canes are one of my favorite hockey clubs. We already talked about it. Got a soft spot for the Canes. Yeah. Wearing my Canes uh, toque this morning uh, to show support. It's my favorite because of the little pom-pom on top. So. I do like that. Yeah, it's a, a good touch. <laughs> it's simple, but, you know, uh, it's, it has everything that it needs. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm just really excited for what, Black Girl Hockey Club has been able to accomplish uh, in the last year, and I'm looking forward to seeing what we're going to be doing in the future. Yeah, um, I want to go back uh, to your first hockey game um, and really dive into to what it was that, that kind of hooked you and grabbed you, because I think um, with with hockey, maybe even more so than than any other sport, it's one that you, I feel like, and we talked about this with, with Mike Whiting on our last episode, that it's almost one you have to really experience in person to truly, I think, appreciate uh, before you become a fan. Because for whatever reason, on television, it just doesn't translate the same. It's gotten better over the years, um, you know, with the advent of high-definition television, and uh, so you can see the puck a little better. Um, but what is it about the live experience that that kind of grabbed you and hooked you? You know, it's so funny because when I first found any sort of interest in the game of hockey, I didn't really have access to watching it on being able to watch it on television. And so I started off by listening to games with uh, radio announcers um, and, you know, the play by plays and really just kind of, and like I said, I'm a, I'm a literature person. So listening to the words and the language of the sport actually really made me feel a little more comfortable with the sport because like I said I wasn't a sports person I didn't know anything about you know 
timeouts and icing and and how are is it quarters is it periods how many are there those things i had no idea and so listening to uh the sport i started listening to dallas stars games right yeah um and they have an announcer named daryl ray daryl razor ray and razor has such a way with words I learned so much just listening to him talk about hockey and it was so much fun to me. It, I ended up buying a couple tickets to go see a hockey game uh, when the stars were coming to California. And um, I went to go see my first game with my husband and his brother. And we had horrible seats up in the rafters, you know, maybe three rows from the, the ceiling. Right, and right. I remember, you know, stepping into that arena and I I don't think I had ever been to a professional sports arena before. I had never seen a basketball game or a professional football game. So I walked into the Honda Center, which is where I saw my first game. And I mean, the smell of the ice, the chill in the air, the, the crowds and um, just the noise of the arena, it's so enamoring. And then when they take the ice, all of a sudden you're seeing, you know, I'm seeing with my eyes the things that I've listened to on the radio. And I was hooked after that. You know, I, I remember there's a picture of me from that game and I'm wearing a crisp brand new Dallas Stars sweater and I'm holding a beer in my hand and I have a huge smile on my face and I just look like I'm having the best time of my life because I was it was so much fun um, but even that very first time I remember feeling a little bit out of place mm -hmm. um, there there weren't a lot of uh, women and definitely no women of color that I, I remember seeing there uh, and, you know, I, I realized that this was going to be an uphill struggle. And I remember even thinking back then, is this going to be worth it? Is this something that I want to invest my time, my money, my energy, my heart into? Uh, because it seems like it's going to be uh, a little bit um, a discouraging place for mm -hmm. me. You know, there, there's I'm not going to have a lot of... Um, folks who are, share the same background as me uh, in this this hockey space. And, you know, I, I remember thinking that even back then. And so, you know, juxtapositioning that with the first game that we went with Black Girl Hockey Club, the feeling was so uh, rich just being in that crowd and and being with those women and I know I wasn't the only one feeling that because I remember sitting there and some of these hockey moms coming up to me with tears in their eyes saying thank you so much for putting this together I've never experienced anything like this I remember hearing um, Devonte Smith Pelly say in an interview about us being there he'd never seen that many black people at a hockey game before and he never thought he would uh so i i think it it's um it's just been a really wild ride uh but every day i'm so thankful to be able to you know have that experience myself uh and and share it with others because it really it really is so meaningful absolutely so 
how many years separated your first hockey game from that first game that you went to uh, with the Black Girl Hockey Club? Let's see. I always get it mixed up, but I want to say that there was about two and a half years um, between those two those two games. But it could be three. So... Uh, how did those two experiences compare your first hockey, your first live hockey game versus then your first hockey game with black girl hockey club? Cause I imagine the two experiences uh, while both probably very enjoyable, were also probably both very different and maybe very enlightening in different ways as well. You know, it's always funny because I've gone to dozens of hockey games with black girl hockey club uh, but when I go by myself, I still have the same experience that I did that very first game. I am a lone black woman in a sea of white men enjoying a sport played by mostly white men. Mm-hmm. And when I came to Raleigh last February, two weeks later, I actually came back here and went to see a hockey game in, in Anaheim, California. And I, w- I could not help but um, compare the experiences of going to see a game, you know, surrounded by um, my friends and and other Black women and their their friends and family, to you know, walking into a hockey game, just my husband and I, uh, and still being very much, uh, very much so uh, an othered kind of uh, person, uh, having an othered experience. Uh, in those in those games. And so, you know, I think of that very first game uh, with the Black Girl Hockey Club, it really felt, um, it just felt comfortable. And, and it felt um, good to see these kids, you know, because we had a bunch of kids at, at that very first game. We had a, a group of hockey moms who brought their sons and their daughters, and we had kids as young as two, um, up in and a bunch of you know single digit double digit kiddos who play hockey uh, on uh, up in um, northern uh, New York, upstate New York, and so you know being able to see those kids watch us, you know other black women, their moms and their aunties and you know people that look like them enjoying the sport that they love, I, that really means a lot to me because representation matters. And them seeing that, you know, they're not an anomaly because oftentimes, you know, when we have these Black Girl Hockey Club meetups, a lot of these people that show up, these Black women, hockey moms, hockey fans, hockey players, where they go to see hockey games, they are the only ones, right? They have that singular experience of otherness when they go. And so they never felt that feeling of being in a group of people who share their backgrounds and culture. And so representation matters for the little kids, uh, for the women like me, uh, for the players to see us and to know that we're supporting them. Uh, it means a lot all around. And the experiences while I you know, enjoy myself both ways, uh, it's just so, so different. And, and I can't wait honestly to get back out there uh, with my girls and, and go see a hockey game. <laughs> <laughs> Renee, I'm sure that you're, you're past the point now, but has there ever been a point when you've walked into a game singularly, not not with the club, and you kind of had this feeling of 
their eyes staring at me instead of, of looking at the game. And is that awkward for you, or and, and how has that changed for you? Does it go from being awkward to yes, you? I don't want you to stare at me, but yes, I like hockey. I'm a hockey fan. Like, how has that evolved for you? And I guess what would be an awkward situation to start for you has it has it changed at all when you you notice that that might still be going on? Oh gosh, you know, I remember one of the first times I went to a, a live hockey game. I was with a, a girlfriend um, in Los Angeles, and we went. We were at Staples Center, and I remember a, a gentleman comes up to me and he says, "Can I take a picture with you?" So I'm like, "Why?" He's like, "Well, well, my buddy here loves black girls," and I and and I'm like okay, no, I know you may not. And, you know, some words were said and, and the situation diffused, but I, I thought it was really interesting that I was so much of an anomaly for this gentleman at this hockey game that he felt the need to document it with a photograph uh, and got upset with me when I refused. And so, yes, I know that there are eyes on me. I know this and it is, it is uncomfortable. You know, it is kind of nerve wracking. And I've said this before that it, it, it can feel almost uh, scary to walk into a space where you are the only one that looks like you and being a woman uh, in a, in a, you know, cisgendered male space is also nerve wracking. You know, we're, we're always asked to prove our fandom to prove that we really deserve to be there. Um, you know, uh, I've, I've had, people sit down next to us at hockey games and talk over me to my husband. And he's just like, I'm just here to cheer her on rah, rah, whatever <laughs> team is playing. I don't know anything about hockey. And that happens time and time again, where, you know, they're asking him what he thinks about a play. And he's like, I don't speak this language. You should talk to my wife, you know, and they're, they're doubly surprised that I, you know, a woman and black at that, uh, know what's going on on the ice and I'm not just there to support my man and so you know I, I realize that it is um, it is not common to see black women at hockey games but I, I do think that the an organization like Black Girl Hockey Club has um, brought the phenomenon of the black fan to the forefront of the minds of, of folks in hockey culture and I love watching you know in 20 21, I, I've noticed that so many of the teams, when they pu are putting out their um, promotional videos, you see more people of color in them now. And that's something that I really do appreciate. And, and I think it, you know, just having a group like Black Girl Hockey Club, it shows folks maybe who don't look like us or maybe don't, um, aren't uh, aware of us. It, they see that, you know, we're fans. We're here to enjoy the game just like you. We're here to spend money just like you uh, and to cry and to yell when our team, you know, does something awesome or, you know, not so great. Uh, and so I think that that's been um, something that is gradually shifting a bit, uh, but just the, the normalization and uh, the lack of, of shock and awe that they're are you know black women who are just as obsessed with the game of hockey as as anybody else i know that it's it's still in its infancy when we only think of black girl hockey club being around for what just a, a few years really as an organization but have you gotten the sense of, of the stories that have gotten out there i loved when you talked about 
bringing kids to the first game and, and getting them that that sense where they can be part of not you know not just the club to go there but part of the hockey community where if there's a group maybe it feels easier to get into the game you want to get into the game that way and, and I can't speak for for those feelings but What's it like for you and the members of the club where you walk in the doors of these buildings and you do have 15, 20, 25 people with you and you're going to love the game? And does it feel like it's easier to be I, – I, I'm trying to phrase this right, Renee. Does it feel easier where those eyes aren't on you when it's the group? Maybe it is, but it's like when they realize, oh, they're all here to cheer. All right, they're fans as opposed to, as you mentioned, being the unicorn that walks into – in arena and people are like, okay, this seems strange to me, even though it shouldn't be. You're a fan who likes the game, but does the the community sense maybe break down more walls than if you just walk in by yourself? Oh yeah, you know how it is when you're rolling deep with your crew. <laughs> you, you feel invincible, right? You're rolling in. You're like, here we are. We're at the game. We're gonna cause some havoc. Gonna eat some pretzels. Like we're just there to have a good time, you know and uh, often when we roll deep, when we have a large crew, we get eyes on us, but it's less of um, less of a judgment, more of a curiosity. Yeah. Uh, like, what are these folks about? You know, what are they doing? What What's going on? Why is there a, you know, why is the guy in a suit walking with them? Or why is there a camera crew there? Something like that. And so, yeah, it's, def- it's definitely easier uh, to walk in with the crew and, and with a, a group of people. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's more fun, right? <laughs> when you can get together with a group of like five or 10 or 20 people and you're just in your seats screaming and yelling and having a good time. Uh, it also makes it so the group is not really focused or worried about what other folks are saying yeah. or thinking or, or looking at, right? Yeah. So- um, so it does definitely make a difference, and it's it's a lot it's a lot of fun to go. The bigger, the better. I always say. Absolutely, and and I feel like we're we're slowly starting to get back to that point where, you know, fans are are slowly coming back to the arena, and and hopefully soon we can welcome large groups back like that as soon as we get some more uh, shots in arms. Um, I, I do want to go back to to really um, when you first had the thoughts of starting Black Girl Hockey Club. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, wondering, uh, realizing really the, the uphill battle uh, that it was going to be. What made you really just want to commit to that and take on that challenge uh, head first? Well, my husband would say it's because I'm contrary, because I, I like I like to do difficult things. Um, but honestly, for me, it was the thought of other there being other black women out there who felt the same way. And I really wanted to find those other women because I knew I was not alone. Um, you know, social media lets me know that. Right. I know that there are other black women who are hockey fans who are maybe on the East Coast or in the Midwest or in Canada or you know across the, the pond or whatever. Um, but when I first started Black Girl Hockey Club, um, as a social media account. And I mentioned, I reached out to Twitter, the Twitterverse. Uh, the way that I did it was with a, um, with a research survey. And so I, I reached out and I, I wanted to know if there were black hockey fans. And if you are a black hockey fan, what are your experiences? And I got about a hundred people to fill out this, 
you know, um, research survey, because like I said, I come from academia. So I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'll, I'll use this in a research project or something. And as I was reading through the, the results and the answers to these questions, I found out that there were a lot of black women hockey fans out there, but they weren't going to games. And they were not going to games because either they didn't have anybody to go with, they didn't feel comfortable going, or they had gone before and had a bad experience. And so that kind of solidified in my mind that I wanted to gather these women together. I wanted to make a space for us because I know that I had not really had incredibly negative experiences at the arena but there are many who have and so I wanted to make sure that we could kind of come together get to know one another and create a community where we all felt comfortable and safe and it's not just you know Black Girl Hockey Club I always say is not just for black girls all you got to do is really support the mission and our mission is to make hockey a safe space for black women so you support that then then you're part of the crew. Yeah, and a part of um, I guess the the uh, the campaign, the the get uncomfortable pledge, and the get uncomfortable campaign. I do want to to talk a little bit about that. Where did kind of that idea come from, and how have uh, you seen hockey fans uh, around North America and maybe even around the globe uh, kind of adopt and embrace that pledge? Yeah, so I'm so glad you brought up the Get Uncomfortable campaign. We, uh, the Black Girl Hockey Club um, board and our volunteers, you know, we were thinking about ways that we could engage the the hockey community uh, to really um, work on shifting hockey culture to a more anti-racist platform. And so as we were kind of thinking about ways to do this, we put together a, a group of really amazing leaders in the hockey community and we came up with a get uncomfortable uh, campaign and the get uncomfortable campaign is an advocacy campaign that focuses on three campaign tenants uh, to encourage to employ and to educate and you know those three campaign tenants are really what black girl hockey club is all about um, but, you know, we wanted to start with something that would appeal and um, help our allies understand what are the needs that hockey culture has uh, in order to, to be more anti-racist uh, on the ice, but also off the ice. And so the Get Uncomfortable Pledge was born, and this was an opportunity for individuals, for organizations, for clubs. To, to pledge to be anti-racist. And it's just a starting point. You know, this is just an acknowledgement of a need within the hockey community. And right now, actually, this week, we hit our six-month um, anniversary for the Get Uncomfortable Pledge. And so we're working on next steps with uh, pledgers and, you know, gathering our 5,000 signatories. We got 5,000 people to sign this pledge in the hockey community, gathering those people together and letting them know, you know, what, what we can do now, what things need to be done in the hockey community. That's what we're working on right now. And it's really exciting because, you know, just to know that not just um, individuals like you and me 
But organizations like the Carolina Hurricanes have publicly announced that they are going to take up the Get Uncomfortable pledge and they are going to make a stance uh, in the hockey community to say that we are not just against racism, but we're going to actively work to eradicate it in our club and in our city. That's huge. You know, that's a that's a um, manifesto for your city to 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 get behind. And so I'm really excited um, to have organizations like the Canes uh, supporting the Get Uncomfortable Pledge, because, you know, something like that isn't isn't just uh, uh, taken lightly by anybody in the organization. This is examined, this is looked over, this is discussed, and those are conversations, uncomfortable conversations that folks are having within, you know, the organization. And those are the kinds of conversations that facilitate change. And, and that's what we want to see in hockey. And so when we talk about our campaign tenants, to encourage, to educate, and to employ, you know, we really want our allies and the folks that have taken up the Get Uncomfortable Pledge to think about how that they can do those three things within their own lives, whether it's, you know, as an individual, as an advocate in the office, you know, within your church group, within your hockey fandom, how can you do those three things, educate, encourage, and employ? Renee, have you noticed that there's been is there still some resistance like when you reach out because some people are wondering, okay, all right, what's really behind this? Or have you noticed that the further that this program goes and setting up things like get on the get uncomfortable campaign, that that resistance becomes less and less because people are seeing what you're doing. And it's not just advocate advocating one little club. You're advocating the growth of the game to everybody. So has there, is there still resistance or are you noticing the, the push or maybe some some hesitancy towards this has kind of declined over the years? I think there's always going to be resistance because, you know, racism and white supremacy are a hell of a drug. And yeah. it makes it so folks don't want to see things change. And change is scary for a lot of people. And change is expensive. And change is difficult. And change is uncomfortable. Right. And, and lots of people don't like any of to be any of those things and to remain stagnant and to to continue on the status quo can be a lot easier. Mm. And so, yeah, we, we get pushback all the time, uh, whether it's from individuals or organizations who just aren't ready to to make the move, because, you know, being anti-racist is not just a, a signature on a pledge. It isn't just, uh, you know, a one day, one time thing. This is an ongoing way of living one's life. This is a way of examining every aspect of our culture and, and addressing the disparities when it comes to, you know, racial injustice. And so I, I know that there's going to be pushback as long as I'm doing this work. But, you know, what I tell folks who get into this um, into anti-racism work, into advocacy of any kind, is that, you know, we've got to, one, take care of one another, which is what the community is for, and two, take care of ourselves. You know, self-care and, and taking care of myself is imperative to being able to continue doing this work. You know, if Michael and I want to go to a hockey game, nobody is going to give us side eye or anything like this. So I'm, this is, I don't know if this is the, the curious question or if you get this a lot, but 
how difficult is it for you not to push back when you do get that resistance? How do you walk away from it? Or is there that time where there's the appropriate time to, like you mentioned, you know, no, you're not taking a picture with me because you think that this is an oddity, but how, how do you balance the, when to, when to give a little shove back or, or how do you just have the grace to walk away from it? You know, I think that, you know, I was mentioning the incident that happened at the Staples Center. And when that happened, I actually did not push back because I, I don't know, when, when something like that happens to a person of color, especially a woman, I, I think that a lot of times women are taught to uh, quietly diffuse the situation without it becoming, you know, violent or, or scary in any way. And so I, you, my first instinct was to jokingly laugh it off and to be able to walk away safely. Uh, and luckily, my, my tiny girlfriend who came with me did not have that same proclivity. proclivity. And so she kind of, you know, took care of the situation. Um, it caused a little bit of a ruckus. And, and then we parted ways. Uh, but a lot of times, you know, that grace that you speak of, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's ingrained in, in black folks to, to be gracious and to be um, very discerning because, you know, the, the consequences of our actions can be deadly, right? We don't have to be um, perpetuating a crime to face deadly consequences. And so I think that that's something that is, is, um, it can be a very difficult conversation. And I was just uh, a very difficult situation. I was just having a conversation uh, with my husband. We were talking about Jackie Robinson. It just came upon his, his, um, his birthday or something um, recently. And, um, you know, we were talking about Jackie Robinson, not uh, just being so incredibly grace, grace, gracious as a player and how he never responded to any, uh, words that were thrown at him in his time of play. Same thing with Willie O'Ree, incredibly gracious, never responded to any uh, negativity that he was uh, subjected to as a player, uh, and yet still subjected to it. His grace didn't save him from, from being subjected to uh, slurs and, and abuse on the ice. And so, you know, it's a, it's a delicate situation where, you know, I think a lot of our parents teach us, you know, and our friends and our churches and, and our communities teach us how to act in situations like that. And I, it, I, I don't think that, I think it's a phenomenon that perhaps doesn't happen in every culture, right? That, that's something we, we talk, um, Black folks talk about having the talk with our kids um, at a time in their lives whenever it becomes important for them to understand that they've got to act graceful in situations like this because the repercussions are going to be, um, they can be much more deadly for young black children, especially young black boys. So you mentioned earlier, um, you know, last year seeing um, really just the uh, the nation coming to, I I think, a boiling point uh, when it comes to uh, to racial issues, and rightfully so, because of the events that led to that. Um, what was your thought process of of 
getting Black Girl Hockey Club involved in that conversation, or was it something that you just felt was natural and the right thing to do? Um, I I kind of felt it it was a natural progression. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was a, a week in June that um, I decided to do my very first Instagram live, and it's so funny because I think about it. And actually, Mr. John Chase, uh, the executive director of your um, uh, foundation, the Kane Foundation, yeah. had been encouraging me to do an Instagram live. He said, "You should do one. You would be so good. You should do it." And so I finally decided to do one in June, and it was the very first one that we did uh, on Instagram, and it was with Soroya Tinker. Uh, who is a professional hockey player for the Metropolitan Riveters uh, NWHL team. Uh, But I think this was actually before she got drafted. And it was right after George Floyd was murdered. And I decided before I talked with Soroya, I was going to talk a bit on my own about what had happened. And I call it now my manifesto uh, because it was was me being 100% brutally honest about hockey, about race, uh, about hockey culture. And I I really felt that it needed to be said because, you know, as a black woman, um, especially, you know, me being um, a biracial, light-skinned, cisgendered black woman, um, I do have privileges. And I do have to acknowledge those privileges. I'm educated, I'm, I'm you know, fully abled. Uh, I've got privileges that I've got to address. And so there, there was a time in last summer where I, I felt that it, these things needed to be said. And you, know, you can check that out on our Instagram page. It's still up there from, from last summer. Uh, but it, it really felt like the time to, to have this conversation. And it, it kind of pivoted uh, Black Girl Hockey Club from, you know, a fan club where we, we were not able to meet up right. in public because yeah. we were in COVID to, you know, a collective of Black women who were able to uh, utilize the digital space in a way that continued to create community. And so after that um, manifesto and my conversation with Soroya, we had a Juneteenth panel discussion. And, you know, Juneteenth is the um, June 19th uh, Black Liberation holiday. Uh, We had a panel discussion with um, Joel Ward and Blake Bolden and Iowa Denier uh, and um, other uh, black hockey uh, stars. And we just talked about our experiences and that kind of kicked off um, the educational portion of that Get Uncomfortable campaign. Even before that was uh, a twinkle in my eye, we were were doing these panels and just talking about allyship and talking about how, you know, shifting hockey culture and what that would look like and, and if that's even possible. Uh, which I, you know, obviously it is because we're we're doing something. We're we're shifting right now. Renee, how important are those conversations? Like you mentioned, I think that we always come from it as, well, we've got to have, you know, a conversation no matter how awkward it might be, or no matter how, you know, we will go into this not knowing what to ask the right questions. But one, what you just said, to have a panel where, you know, 
black voices can talk about these are our experiences and you find out okay it's it's similar to here then when you know guys like Michael and I come and ask you you know a, a question it's not that you're you're walking on eggshells but you know there's some things that you want to ask and you're not quite sure how to ask it is it the thought in your mind now just ask the question because let's get to the conversation that's the important thing it doesn't matter how you ask it but we have to get conversations so we can start moving way more down the road than what we should be right now in 2021. You know, I'm a teacher. And so I say there's no stupid questions. There's no bad questions. And I often do hear that um, sentiment that, you know, there's, there's folks in hockey who want to make a culture shift and want to facilitate change, but they don't want to mess up and they don't want to miss step. They don't want to ask the wrong thing. They don't want to offend because they don't want to get canceled. Right. That. quote unquote canceled and what i say is you know being an ally um to black folks is going to involve a lot of uncomfortable moments it's going to involve a lot of uncomfortable conversations and you're going to be wrong sometimes and that's okay because if you go into you know um this work with an open heart and an open mind and you're willing to you know, shift your point of view when you learn new information. I mean, that's all we can ask as human beings is to keep your mind open and to be able to learn and grow, right? And so, you know, I tell folks just to be brave. That's all it comes down to is to be brave. Think outside the box, you know, when it comes to things like hiring, like employment, like the wage gap, when it comes to uh, whatever small amount of power you might have at your job, utilize it to amplify Black voices. You guys are doing it right now, you know, and that's important because we need folks to utilize the power that they have, whether it's in their families or in their offices or, you know, whatever institutions that they're, they're a part of and, and be anti-racist and question policies and and question the way things are you know working question the status quo because until we have our our white allies doing that things aren't going to change we need to all be on the same page and i think that's what was so um exciting about our the protests that were happening this past summer um a a year ago is it seems like we are collectively as a nation waking up to the same realities and i think that's really important that we we all get behind issues like anti-blackness like anti-asian racism and we say it, it might not affect me personally but as a human being and a person that shares this community with these folks I'm going to take up the mantle and we're going to work together for equity and inclusion and equality. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think that things are, things are, are they're the tightest changing, right? Hockey is, um, is a hundred years old. Professional hockey here is a hundred years old. Uh, the NHL is anyways. Um, and so it's not going to be quick. It's not going to be easy. There's a lot of things, um, you know, the institution was made this way. There's a lot of things to kind of unpack in hockey, but I think that there's also a lot of amazing people who are willing to do the work. What, um, you know, is kind of the bubble, the playoffs in the bubble kind of coincided with, um, with really the temperature in the United States rising when it came to racial issues. So what sort of, um, 
inspiration did you take from seeing um, the players stand as one um, and and kind of uh, denounce you know everything that was wrong that was happening and uh, and really come together as a united front? What what were your thoughts on that? You know what I think the best thing about that was seeing um, teammates supporting their black teammates. Yep. Um, you know I I think many of these professional players have played and been in the hockey world their entire lives. And, you know, their experiences are, like we said, you know, very similar, um, the things that they have gone through. And to, I think for them to know that their teammates acknowledge those experiences and that they have their backs and that they support them, uh, I think that, that that's huge for them. You know, I love to see uh, the communities being built, just, you know, the the out of that came the HDA, the Hockey Diversity Alliance. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful organization for the for the players to have access to uh, because they don't have the Black Girl Hockey Club. <laughs> you know, they, they don't have that community. Uh, they, they to be able to support each other. I mean, that's huge for them. Uh, and I think that that's something that's really necessary. And again, you know, having, especially in hockey, having the support of their, their white allies and their white teammates is, is huge because a lot of times folks don't pay attention to issues because they don't personally affect us, right? Yeah. And so it's easy for people to turn a blind eye to racial injustice if it doesn't affect them. But in reality, if you live in the United States, it affects you. doesn't matter what your, your racial background is. And so I, I think it was really great that, you know, I, I just remember seeing uh, Ryan Reeves with his entire mm-hmm. roster standing yeah. behind him. That must have been amazing for him mm-hmm. to, to feel that power of, of that support, you, you know, and that was inspiring for me. I never thought in my life that I would see any hockey players taking a knee before a game. Yeah. I mean, I, it's something I'll never forget. Yeah. And the same time when you talk about voices and amplifying them, Matt Dumba's speech uh, for that. Uh, I, I and, yeah. and, You know, it's just how I cannot imagine how difficult it was for him to go and deliver that speech. But at the same time, how important was it for, you know, and as you say, it's, it's not just uh, for black voices, but for voices that feel like we got to speak out. And he did. And I mean, we know that speech was from the heart. You can obviously tell, but how important is a moment like that, as you mentioned, where he just didn't say it at a press conference. He said it on NHL ice in the playoff that that was, the scenery, and I hate to say this, was at, was important because of what it added to the message. How important was that for you? And when you're watching that, is that one of those things where you're like, this took some, I'll use the word guts. <laughs> I think that's going to go someplace <laughs> else. Um, but this, this took some guts for him to do that and then deliver that speech, to have a voice, even if he wasn't looking to be the voice, but to, to have that voice at that moment, what did that, what can that mean for the movement or, or things going forward? You know, as a Filipino American, I think Matt Dumba has had very similar experiences of being othered as a hockey player. And so to have his allyship and to have him stand up and to speak for Black lives, I think that, you know, I, I can't imagine how how nervous he must have been and what kind of... of um, feedback he must have gotten and and um 
backlash, honestly. I'm sure it was there. Uh, but again, you know, marginalized communities supporting marginalized communities, we've got to do it. You know, this issue affects all of us. And so having him stand up and say, this is something we've got to talk about, and this is something that hockey needs to address, I think that, you know, again, that support, but for his teammates and from his teammates, it's, it's huge. Yeah. And it's, it's not just um, a start, but it's also a peek in, you know, behind the veil of, of hockey players and, and what's important to them. And I think it gives, it gave, you know, other hockey players, the, the, let's see, what's the word I'm looking for? it gave them the opportunity to also flex their, their um, bravery yeah. muscles, right. And to actually stand up for something that they know is right. And so I'm so glad that Matt Dumba did that. And I'm so glad that, you know, the, the, the other allies took the time to acknowledge what was going on, because I remember at the time, you know, watching the other, um, the MLB and the NBA postpone and cancel their games. It was just, you know, harrowing to see what was what was happening. And as a black hockey fan, you know, I my expectations, I mean the bar was on the ground. Right. I had no expectations. And then to see something like this happen and come out, it was huge. Well I, on that same coin, just a few years earlier, you had people getting upset at athletes taking a knee for this and wanting them out of the sport. And I, I know that we still have miles to go, but did it at least, was there at least this in some, in your minds and for the club, you know, people were like, all right, okay, this is the right thing. But I also have to think you're like, this was what was going on two, three years ago. It, it, it you know, nothing's really changed other than horrific events were really put forth for us to see that. So is there kind of a, you know, a good feeling, but at the same time, and again, I'm I'm trying to ask the question the right way, and I don't know if I can. But is there this feeling of, for lack of a better term, like what the hell, people? This was going on before. <laughs> you know, I think of it, the civil rights movement really picked up steam when um, white folks were able to see what was happening to their their black neighbors on television, and having you know the exposure to other cultures and, and the realities of other cultures, I think has always been um, a game changer when it comes to uh, civil rights and social justice uh, issues. And so, yeah, you know, um, it's great to, to see folks uh, being more comfortable with, with uh, athletes taking a knee before the game. But again, you know, that's just the first step. Right. That's, that's just a, um, What's the word I'm looking for? It's a it's a bit of theater, right? To call attention to it to an issue, and it has been from day one. It was never meant to be something disrespectful. It was meant to call attention to an issue, and in that vein, it it did its job, right? Colin Kaepernick did his job. He called attention to an issue uh, that so many people did not want to talk about or think about, or you know, while they were enjoying their sports game and that's something that we continue to hear with black girl hockey clubs keep politics out of sports um, but i would say that politics sports are inherently political and they always have been uh from from jesse owens to muhammad ali 
we're, we're not going to uh, be able to separate politics from sports because, hey, you know, athletes are individuals. They have backgrounds, they have cultures, they have experiences. And so I think that it's really important that um, America now sees that and addresses it and is more comfortable with this idea of calling attention to um, police brutality, uh, which is what Ka Colin Kaepernick was doing when he initially took a knee uh, in front of the, the Star Spangled Banner. But also, you know, there's got to be more steps after the knee. That is not the only thing that, that needs to be done. Uh, same thing with the Get Uncomfortable Pledge, yeah. right? There's got to be steps after putting your name to uh, an electronic uh, signature. You've got to do the steps that come with it. And so I, I, it is kind of, um, I don't know what the word is. It's, it's kind of obnoxious yeah. <laughs> to see, you know, the, the, the moment of realization happening, you know, five years too late. Right. But also it has to happen. It has to come. And, and for, every, for each person, their own time. And that's completely understandable. Uh, my thing is, you know, once you have that understanding, now what? Yeah. Well, it is. It, I was going to say, it is funny when we get the keep politics out of sports or, you know, keep your sports out of politics. Uh, this is a hockey podcast, too, at the end of the day. And the most important hockey game, sorry to all of our Canadian friends and fans around the world who will listen to this, but the most important hockey game in the history of, of at least our lifetime was as political as it gets in 1980 when the United States beat the Soviet Union. I mean, those guys didn't realize it was political, but it was made political for everybody who was out there. So, yeah, sports is that platform, and I, I think that's when I think what we're starting to see, yeah, maybe a couple of years too late, but we're starting to see the stage being a little bit more accepted, but what is the next step though? When you, you talk about that, what more can the NHL do or, or leagues do or, or people do what, and I hate doing this to you, Renee. Oh, please tell us what is the magic key here, but what is that? What is, or what could be the next step to help things get to where, where we want them to be? Honestly, you know, I'm going to circle on back to those uh, campaign tenants when we talk about educating allies and encouraging black girls and boys to get involved in hockey uh, or employing um, black folks in your offices. You know, I, I honestly think that I would lead with uh, uh, employment. Uh, you know, we look at hiring disparities in hockey mm -hmm. um, and the the real lack of representation and diversity in hockey. We got to start there. Yep. You know, just yesterday, the NWHL announced that they were hiring Kelsey Colzer for to be the uh, uh, assistant um, to the commissioner on the subjects of diversity and inclusion. And that's huge. That's wonderful. You know, there are no black women in the leadership of the NWHL. And now there are. I mean, that's that's amazing. And so, um, you know, I would I would encourage folks when they're um, looking to head back to the office and fill in some of those positions for folks who had been furloughed or folks who, um, you know, left 
to other positions. Uh, considering hire, consider hiring outside of your traditional channels. You know, you guys in North Carolina have a very unique position because you're surrounded by all those HBCUs, those yeah. historically black colleges and universities. You know, check out their business departments and their sports management departments and their journalism departments. I was really lucky when I came to Carolina uh, to see the Canes last year to be able to go on College Colors Day. Yeah. And it was the first time that the Canes had uh, two HBCUs uh, celebrated for their College Colors Nights. And that was NCANT and North Carolina Central University. And not only that, but we got to get some students from those, uh, those schools to come with us to go see a hockey game. And let me tell you, when those students finished that game, they got to go down to the ice and go skating for the first time ever for some of them in their lives on a hockey rink. Let me tell you, after that game, they were saying, Miss Renee, how do I get a job in hockey? <laughs> what is all this all about? Here's my email address. Please tell me when they have internships open. All they needed was an entry point. Yeah. You know, all they needed was a way to experience a hockey game and they were hooked, Yeah. you know? And so I would say looking to employ outside of those traditional places, looking to get interns, you know, volunteers uh, from some of these places that perhaps have not had access to hockey before. I think that that's a wonderful start because once we start populating our offices and our C-suites and our boardrooms with diverse spaces, we're going to get a diversity of thought as well. And that's what, that's what hockey needs, right? Yeah. To continue to grow the game. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I do want to touch on uh, your trip to Raleigh um, and just your impressions of, of the area and the building and, and the team um, and, and just uh, the whole experience. How was it? Uh, and when can we get you back here? <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I can get on a plane, I'm coming back there. And I got to go on a, not a Sunday because all the good food places are closed on Sunday. Oh, we will we will take you to all of oh, the yeah. food places. Yeah, if you need if, if you, you need, need tour guides, we're here for you. Yeah. That will happen. 100%. Yeah, 100%. So, when I came with to Raleigh uh, a year ago in February, it was the weekend after Valentine's Day. So I came with my husband and we, you know, had a weekend in North Carolina together and I had never been to Raleigh. And so, you know, coming into town, the first thing I wanted to do was to get food. Obviously, yes. I was going to find some good barbecue. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and then all day on Sunday was hockey games. I mean, from the moment I woke up until the moment I went to sleep, it was at PNC Arena. And we had, I mean, I don't think I've ever had such an all-encompassing hockey day like I did when I was in Carolina. I mean, we started off with tailgating with the yes. Red Eye Rowdies, yep. which y'all know how to tailgate, let me tell you. <laughs> some good food, some good tunes, and fun people. We had a blast. And I remember standing in the parking lot just like, you guys do this every game? <laughs> This is wonderful. I We need to get on that boat here in California because we don't do that at all. So that was so much fun. Just having that experience 
uh, they, the, the team out there in Carolina wanted to make sure that I, I got to do something like that. Cause yeah. I guess that's just, you know, a Canes tradition. Yep. There's all sorts of tailgating out in the parking lot. So we got to do that. And then we had a tour of the arena, which was amazing, you know, and then um, the game. And while the game was going on, I unfortunately always have to get up from my seat and go do interviews and go talk to people. So I'm over here trying to watch the game and I kept having to go places. But one of the very cool things that I got to do was go down uh, underneath um, the arena down to the ice and um, meet some of the, the kids that were playing in between uh, the periods during intermission. Yeah. And the, the day that I was there, it was the Capital City Crew. Yep. And this is a group of, let's see, they tell me that it's Wake County Boys and Girls yep. Club and the Youth Hockey Association, the Raleigh Youth Hockey Association. Um, and this was a group of young you know, probably between the ages of 10 and, and 14, 15 black kids that are playing hockey. And so I got to go down to the there where they were getting changed and we got to chat a little bit. I got to hype them up a little bit, put some stickers, Blacker Hockey Club stickers on their helmets. Yeah. And then um, John Chase, uh, they took he took me down to the ice so that I could watch them play at ice level and that was really cool there's some pictures of me you know selfieing with stormy in the background uh and and the kids on the ice and i'm pretty sure i have a really great picture of sebastian ajo getting squished up against the glass and my face right there you know in selfie mode <laughs> a great picture for you not so much for sebastian but okay no <laughs> Um, I, I did want to ask you um, just kind of a larger picture question. Um, in your time with Black Girl Hockey Club, maybe what has been the most, uh, some of the most memorable feedback uh, that you've received, either from a fan or a mom or a child? You know, uh, what's been, what maybe stands out to you as, as memorable, memorable feedback to let you know that, hey, you know what, you're doing something here that, that truly matters? You know, I think the most memorable times for me have been our scholarship awardees and the conversations that are we've been able to have with them. Uh, we've given away, oh gosh, let's see, four and seven, eleven, twelve, twelve or thirteen scholarships since um, last summer, and we have three three times a year we are giving away a set of scholarships to uh, girls that meet various criteria uh, on our website. You can find the application. Um, and so in winter, we gave away seven scholarships and we scheduled a time to sit down with the, the girls and their parents. And those are always the most meaningful conversations for me because get, you know getting to talk with parents who again, feel like unicorns. They're the only black parents in there for the team or that they, they see in the arena um, or in the league sometimes. And so these parents letting me know how much it means to not only you know have the financial support, but also the community support and to know that there are other black women out there 
that have gone through the same thing that they're going through and who are now there for them to lean on. Uh, I had a conversation with one of our scholarship awardees who is from Kenya in winter. And so Hanan plays uh, hockey with the Kenyan Ice Lions, uh, their youth league out in Kenya, Africa. And we got to talk to her. Uh, It was five o'clock in the morning for me, but four o'clock in the afternoon for her. And she was, it was tea time. Uh, So she was in the break room at her school uh, talking to me. And it was, the sun hadn't even come up (laughs) behind me when we spoke. But being able to talk with her and just, you know, let her know that she has a support system all across the globe. I mean, those those are the conversations that stick with me. Uh, and those are the the times that I look forward to every quarter when we're talking, when I know that we're going to be able to talk with the scholarship parents and their coaches and the teams uh, and, and the girls. Uh, just being able to let them know that we're here and that we exist and and now we are support for them and their families uh, and being able to to um, have those relationships grow you know uh, our scholarship awardee for last summer her name is Talia Rose Tambro and she's from uh, London Ontario in Canada yeah. and I'm I still talk with her mom on a regular basis she checks in with me and I just had a conversation with her and Talia not too long ago uh, and you know it, those those are the types of lasting relationships that I hope to foster with Black Girl Hockey Club. There's something you brought up about your visit here and you brought kids who'd never been to a hockey game before then you take them to the ice and they get so excited for it but for the the big picture for what you've done that here's a black woman who loves hockey and now someone can actually see that there's a black woman who loves hockey sitting in the stands then there's a guy like kevin weeks who played goal and now you can see kevin weeks on tv as an analyst breaking down the game or we can run down the, the line of great players or uh, Blake Bolden, who is a scout for an NHL team, who's a black woman. I know for a lot of times people don't want to be the first, but you have to be. How important are these people, especially for a message you and, and this club's trying to get out to? You can be part of this. You're, it, it's here for you. Uh, I know there's not the, the numbers aren't, aren't great right now, but there is this opportunity. And, and how important are those those voices and, and importantly faces for people to see, because if they can do it, as, as you know, this has been a theme that we've noticed. If somebody sees it, then they can believe they can do it. So how important has that been, especially just in the last few years, trying to get a message out about hockey can be for everyone? You know, for me, it was important to know that those people, people like Kevin Weeks, existed, right? Anson Carter, Blake Bolden, Willie O'Ree, uh, Joel Ward, you know, J- when JT Brown uh, lifted his fist while he was a, a, a t- at Tampa Bay um, to protest during the national anthem, it I, made me as a Black fan realize that you know, there is a place for me in hockey yeah. and I might have to elbow my way to that place, but it exists. And, and I can not only take it, take up space for myself, but also create space for those who come after me, like our scholarship awardees and our, our young hockey players. Uh, I, I forgot to mention, I, we actually gave away a scholarship to 
uh, one of your junior Canes. Yep. Her name is Rayla Wilkes. And I mean, if you're a Canes fan, you probably already know about Rayla because she's pretty famous in Raleigh. Uh, Rayla got one of our $1,000 travel scholarships this last winter. And I got to meet Rayla when I was in Raleigh last year. And actually, you know, me and Rayla go way back. Uh, we met in Nashville back in 2019 as well. And so, you know, creating a space for girls like Rayla uh, in hockey is what Black Girl Hockey Club is all about. And I think folks like Blake Bolden, like Soroya Tinker, like Sarah Nurse, all who have publicly supported Black Girl Hockey Club, they see the potential in that and they see the importance behind what we're doing. And so having their support and just being us being able to support them. I don't know if you could see my Sarah Nurse Barbie that I have right there. Um, but, you know, uh, I think it's, like you said, representation matters. Yeah. We can see what they're doing, and it gives me the courage to continue what I'm doing. And hopefully what I'm doing can give somebody else the courage to, to be anti-racist and to step up in a sport that they love and do what's right. Renee Hess. She is the founder executive director of Black Girl Hockey Club. Thank you so much for joining us. My wife was so geeked out that uh, we were interviewing you today. And then she brought out, you'll be great friends because you were wearing your Matt Cullen jersey the other day. Just so you know, you and I, we will ride with Matt Cullen to wherever he wants to go. Wherever he wants to go, I'm there. Oh, I'm there. I, I mean, we, I, I'm, I'm going to try to talk to Don Waddell and see, hey, you know, why not? Sure. You know, just depth player. Uh, but please go to blackgirlhockeyclub.org and uh, do take the pledge to get uncomfortable. But as Renee said, don't just put your name on a digital signature. Get involved and be part of it in the way that you have had uh, so much involvement in growing the game. Renee, thanks for, for taking some time out. You have been so accommodating to us here. We thank you so much for you taking the time. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. It was great chatting with you. Uh, many thanks to our Renee Hess for taking time out of her day to uh, join us here on Amplifying Black Voices. Kind of the last episode, the the initial run of this special podcast series, the finale of this, and uh, I couldn't really think of a better person to to help us cap off our first uh, series of of conversations uh, with influential black voices in and around hockey. Um, and she's, uh, she's really one of, uh, one of the leading, uh, black voices in and around hockey right now, just with, um, the work that, that she and, and her organization are doing. Um, a lot of, uh, a lot of credit goes to her for, for really, um, growing the game at the, at the grassroots level and encouraging others to, do their part as well. And that's a big part of the get uncomfortable pledge, I think is to, is to encourage um, allyship amongst all hockey fans. Uh, and the fact that they've uh, had and seen so much success with that campaign, just nine months in, she said uh, is incredibly impressive. Yeah. And the fact that she is an educator and she is coming at this from a point of this isn't, Hey, let's all just get together and have a good time and go home. It's let's be educated about, why we like the game, you know, what can we do to improve the game? What can we do to improve fan experiences? And, and it's funny, Michael, I've always thought it's odd that there's little factions within a group of fans for a team. Like you, you just cheer the team. Everybody should, 
cheer for the team. And that to me is that key word, everybody. And when you can see more people enjoying a game, I just think it's better for the game. And we want to thank everybody who has uh, taken a part here of the first run that we've had of amplifying black voices from Larry Perkins to Matt Moorfield to Nigel Wheeler to Mike Whiting and, and now RNA Hess for taking time to, you know, just give their experiences, give their voice to uh, what's going on and, and what more needs to be done and sharing their stories. We cannot thank them enough, and we hope that you've enjoyed uh, this first run that we've done here for uh, our special Canes cast. Yeah, so please let us know if uh, if you enjoyed the episodes, um, if you have suggestions for, for guests you'd like to hear from in the future, because we do plan on continuing this series. Um, it's not going to be as regular, at yeah. least not uh, to start, but we do plan on uh, continuing this series because it is, I think, uh, important to have these conversations. And uh, so if you have suggestions for, for guests you'd like to hear from, we've got a short list that we're kind of working from now as well. Yep. Uh, we'll certainly add them and, and give it our best effort to, to get in touch with these people. Um, but it was, uh, you know, these when I look back on these five episodes, I think um, I think we've we've all learned a lot. And hopefully it hopefully it helps inspire some critical thinking and some conversations maybe that you have yourself. Um, maybe it inspires you to, to sign the Get Uncomfortable Pledge if you haven't already. Maybe it inspires you to become more active and, and supportive of the Black Girl Hockey Club and, and what they're doing. Um, but it, in any little way that, that we can uh, maybe move uh, and make progress, really. Yep. That's that's really the ultimate goal. Any any little way we can help do that um, is going to be impactful in the long run. Uh, I just hope that maybe for some people out there, you take that step of having that conversation and learning where somebody is coming from. Uh, I think for me, that's the, the big thing that Michael and I have taken out of this uh, from the stories that we have been told from uh, Nigel Wheeler, the general counsel of the Carolina Hurricanes, from Larry Perkins, who... Uh, what he has done around the arena and what he's done uh, just for his life, those stories, just to hear what they've gone through, to hear from Mike Whiting. I, I still can't shake the story that Mike Whiting told us about being pulled over for laughing. Um, but those are conversations, folks, that need to be had so you can find out what somebody who you don't know what they're going through, what they've gone through. And hopefully it's – I love the word that uh, RNA has kept using, which was allies. Yeah. Or the allies are the good guys. Just remember that yep. anytime you've ever heard that phrase. So uh, make sure that uh, you take some time, and we appreciate you for listening to this, but hopefully you take some time, and uh, we appreciate you taking the time to listen to these uh, amplifying black voices here for Kane's Cast. Uh, and Michael Smith deserves all of the credit for this. He is the the guy who has hustled for all of this to, to make this happen. Uh, I am I'm glad that I get to work with such a, a great character human being like you, Michael. So thank you for this. Thank you for being the driving force behind this. And uh, hopefully everybody appreciates uh, what's been done. So thank you. Well, thank you for joining me in the journey. And thanks to, to all of you, too, for listening and joining us in this journey. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. And we will bring you more episodes um, soon. Uh, we're uh, uh, hopefully be 
releasing maybe one once a month is kind of what we're aiming for now just to give you an idea of what to expect uh, but hopefully you enjoyed this initial run uh, take some time to re- reflect on on all the conversations and uh, what we can all do moving forward so uh, thanks again for listening to to this episode of of amplifying black voices our thanks again to our renee hess and all of our guests who have joined us on the special podcast series for mike maniscalco i'm michael smith